Well, good morning, church. It is uh, good, as always, to be here and a privilege to fill in the pulpit, to be able to preach. I um, trust that you are all doing well. If you do have your Bibles this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, but you do have a phone, you can Google Ephesians 2 ESV, and it'll show up. And so there is no excuse. But if you don't have a phone or a Bible, that's okay. Follow along, because I'll be reading the text. So I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Do you like movies? Do you um, like stories? Do you like to read novels that uh, genre of literature called fiction? I can't say that I'm particularly inclined to movies or novels. Maybe there is, you know, once in a decade, there might be a movie that catches my attention. And I want to go ahead and watch it. I like to read classic literature, but then again, regrettably, it's uh, one of those once every two to three years kind of thing when I actually pick up a book of fiction and, and read. But even as one who is the furthest one can be from an arts or drama or movie critic, I know that the good guys, for the most part generally win at the end. And even so, I, I, I coach myself and I talk to myself throughout a movie. No, don't worry, Tom. Things seem tense now, but there will be a reckoning, there will be redemption, and good will prevail, even if it's only one minute before the credits. It will happen. And so as a, as a wannabe philosopher, I inadvertently spend more time than I should pondering about the fascinations with stories. Stories begin with a setting and the characters are introduced and as the narr narrative progresses, tension begins to amount and accumulate and inevitably it leads to a major climactic event followed by some resolution and ending with one of those they lived happily ever after moments. Now, we, we, we all know this about stories, but what is it about us? What is it about us that attracts us to stories? Why is it that there are on average three new movies released in Canada in the U.S. every single day? Why do we see on average about 100,000 novels published in English annually? It's because we love the most crucial element of stories. You know what that is? Contrast. Contrast. The struggle between the protagonist on the one hand and the antagonist on the other hand. The sudden and unexpected change in direction, that plot twist. The palpable reality of triumph and tragedy. 
Contrast is attractive to us, isn't it? Contrast is very attractive to us, and our world is made up of contrasts. The crescendo in music from soft to loud, back to soft, then to loud again. The magnificence of sunsets and sunrises where day and night meet. Beautiful landscapes. Just Google beautiful landscapes and what you see are pictures. 95% of what you see will be pictures of hills and valleys. The contrast between high and low. And water and dry land. The contrast. It's appealing to us. We rejoice at the birth of a child being brought out of nothing to life. And we deeply mourn the loss of a loved one moving on from life to death. And in the Bible, as well as in the world at large, we see many contrasts. We see nothing to something. We see darkness and light. We see day and night, male and female. There are clean and unclean foods. There are the, there's the opposition of slave and free But there's one contrast in this life that far exceeds and stands above every other contrast. And this contrast applies to every single one of us here. You see, a sunset may have absolutely no effect on you. And contrasts in color and music may have very little impact on you. But... What we have here this morning in the text we are about to engage with is of great significance and it calls out for an answer. And it calls out for an answer because its impact has eternal ramifications, eternal consequences. So this is what Paul writes in Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 9. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you, and this is plural, you, once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's have a quick word of prayer. Father, would you be merciful to us? There are difficult things in the text, as always is the case, but there is great simplicity in the gospel. 
There is great simplicity in the fact that Christ Jesus came to save sinners, and this is what the scriptures attest to. And so I pray, Lord, that there would be no hindrance in the presentation of your word, and that hearts would be in tune, and that hearts would be quickened, and that there would be edification in the life of your church. Amen. So here then is the nexus of contrast. Men and God. Men and God. In the first three verses, Paul, who is the author of Ephesians, explains to his reader who man is and what man does. And by man, I just mean humans in general. Who we are and what we do. And then he moves on to the second part, who God is and what God does. Who we are and what we do, who God is and what God does. So who are we? So in answering the who question, Paul describes the state of being human. The state of being human. Verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. We are dead. We are dead. And this deadness is qualified by sin and trespass, which means the same thing. We are dead in sin and trespass. So uh, a natural question is, Paul, how can we who are alive be dead? Kind of like the question that Nicodemus asked Jesus. How can we who are alive be dead? And of course, Paul is not speaking in physical terms. Physical deadness is not the case here. He is speaking in metaphysical terms. It is a metaphor that Paul is using. And the the same Paul that wrote Ephesians notes in Romans 3 that all people are under sin without exception. There is no exception to the state of being dead in sin as a humanity. Now, pulling from the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, Paul writes again in Romans 3, No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. When King David begins to recognize the true nature of his own heart, after using his kingly authority to sleep with another man's wife, he laments in Psalm 51, crying out, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Sinful human nature. The prophet Jeremiah, contending with the rebellion of his own people, proclaims in chapter 17, verse 9, that the human heart is deceitful above what? All things, and desperately wicked, and it is beyond understanding. The human heart, which is inclusive of your thoughts, your feelings, your will, often lies and leads one to do what is wrong, not what is right. 
This past week, my son willingly and willfully chose to disobey my wife twice about the same thing. Now, back to back, because someone in the first service said, can you teach me what you're doing? Your kid's only disobeying you twice a week. I'm like, no, 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 no. Twice in two seconds. Should have mentioned that. That's exactly what happened. It was twice back to back about the same thing. And so in the course of some disciplinary action, I asked him what was going on in his heart because we talk about the heart a lot at home, right? We try not to just look at the behavior but get to the heart of the matter. And right, um, so I asked him what was going on in his heart right before he had made the decision that he knew was wrong. It was a wrong decision. Now, he's only four years old. And he was well aware of the circumstances and told me that he chose to disobey despite the fact that he knew that his heart was telling him that he should. And, and I meant making the distinction between heart and conscience, got all philosophical. He didn't understand anything, but then I'm just like, okay, that's all right. But, but we got to the heart and the point was that there was something in him that was fighting against himself, as Paul says sometimes, saying, yes, go and do it. So he was very much aware of the fact that he was doing something wrong. It wasn't an accidental thing. Now, that's not unique to my son. That is not unique to, to, to a child. It's a universal condition of the heart. It's a universal condition of being a human. Right before God sends the deluge, the flood, to do away with humanity, save six people, this is what we read in Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And after the flood, after the deluge, this is what we read in Genesis 8-21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, like that aroma of life, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's the condition. Now, perhaps the most quoted and well-known passage in the Bible, John 3.16, for God's love the world that he gave, he sent his son to save the world. John 3.16 is followed by John 3.19, which reads, for this is the judgment the light, namely Jesus, has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were wicked. They rejected Christ because their hearts were not aligned to the light, to righteousness, to what is good, but rather to wickedness and darkness. Now to tie everything back to Paul, Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul knows his Old Testament. Paul knows himself. Paul knows God. And as John Calvin has made it abundantly clear in his Institutes of the Christian Religion when he was writing in the late 1500s, all right, Man cannot know himself apart from knowing God. And man cannot know God apart from knowing himself. So this, therefore, friends, is the, the human 
condition. We are dead in sin. We are spiritually dead in sin, which is the natural and logical implication of living before God, before Him. When Paul says that no one is good, that doesn't mean that even an evil figure like Hitler is incapable of showing kindness. It's not what Paul means by that. Simply means that when one begins to ponder the holiness and the goodness of God, the only conclusion is that we fail and fall miserably and infinitely short of his perfection. It's a relative statement. No one is good relative to the God who is always good. You can do all these good things, but the prophet Isaiah says that even our most righteous deeds are like dirty rags before God. So this then answers the who question. Who is man? Man's a sinner. Dead in sin. Spiritually dead. Now what do we do? What does this state of being characterized by being human, how does that act itself out? How does it behave? Verses 2 to 3. Man acts in accordance with his nature and his character. This is what Paul's leading us to understand that we act in accordance to in accordance with our nature and our character. A tree may seem good. I'm a landscaper. I plant lots of trees and I offer one year warranty on my trees, in case you're interested. <laughs> and every spring I get calls from the previous year about dead trees, and I gotta go and do good with my promise of my warranty and replace them. Now, if I knew that a tree's root was damaged or unwell, I would not have planted them in the first place. Why go back and do more work? But I can't know that, especially since the leaves are green. Just because a tree has green foliage and just because a tree is blossoming does not immediately indicate that it is prospering it may very well be dying, but only the roots can tell you that. And this tree metaphor can be extended to us. The way we act is represented by what one sees in the branches of the tree, but our hearts can be represented by the root system of the tree. And here's Paul's description of what spiritually dead people do. Verse 2, they Walk in sin, following the, the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sense of disobedience. We um, live in the passions of our flesh. We carry out every desire of the heart, of the mind, and the body. We're by nature children of wrath. So we do things in accordance with that. So these descriptive phrases... They're not detailed. Like elsewhere, Paul gives you a list of sins. This, this, and this, and this sin. Don't do this. Sexual immorality, covetousness, idolatry, all that. Here he's being very universal. He's being very, very general. And he's pointing to a natural state of spiritual death and the resulting behavior of such a state. Paul is effectively saying this. We act as we are. Being spiritually dead, you are piloting your own ship. You have the freedom. Listen to this one. You have the freedom to do whatever feels good and what sounds right to you. 
when you're spiritually dead. Your choices are made and you have the authority in and of yourself, or so you think, to justify your own actions. In the last century alone, genocides have led to the murder of 9.9 million people. And this is an extremely conservative number. Extremely conservative. Far more than that. One pornographic website, just one, gets 100 million visits a day. 100 million a day. That's a tenth of a billion in one day with its top searches relating to homosexuality and incest. A recent survey in the United States showed that one in four people are totally fine with withholding taxes from the government despite the possibility of fines and jail time. But you might say, this is just not me. I don't go there, I don't do that. Now, if you are not convinced about your sinful state, consider this thought experiment for a moment. Suppose that a technology comes out which is able to track your thoughts and somehow transcribe them into video format. And suppose further that you are offered a substantial amount of money to partake in the trial phase of this product. Substantial amount. You agree, and the product proves to be rather effective and successful. Creating a video of all your thoughts in the past, say, month. But there's a catch to receiving the money. The money will only be handed to you if all your friends and family are allowed to be with you in the theater to watch your thoughts, your deepest, darkest, most private thoughts. Now, I suppose that any sane person would decline that offer. There's a, there's a proverb in the Bible that says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The heart indicates who you are, and we in our general and our natural state are inclined to pursue evil, but it takes tremendous self-inspection and honesty, an incredible amount of humility to acknowledge this. So to what then, Paul? Is this the end to which man was created? Because that is a bleak, unpromising picture of mankind to be perpetually wicked and evil. Is, is reality really like Othello? Like a book or a movie where there is no happily ever after moment, no resolution, no redemptive value whatsoever at the end. Well, that's not the case. Because now we can look at the other link in the chain of contrast. God. We, we looked at man... What we do and how we act, we're sinful and we act sinfully. And here's God now. Here's the con contrasting element. Now, there is something that you may have picked up on 
as I was reading the first three verses, the fact that this description of man is historical. It's in the past, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And you were by nature children of wrath. And you followed your own passions, passions of your body and of your mind. But that's no longer the case. Why? Because of verse 4. But God... Man is a sinner spiritually dead, destined to judgment. Who is God? Who is God? Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, there is the descriptive element that Paul gives us about God. God is rich in mercy. And I, I may not be able to give you the best definition of mercy. I suspect that you have a general idea of what it means, I didn't consult a dictionary, but from what I can gather in the Bible, mercy is related to compassion and slowness of anger. Compassion and slowness of anger. Everything that Paul mentioned about our natural state and our actions should rightly invoke the wrath of God, but God being rich in mercy, God is angry with sin. He's a just judge. He ought to be angry with sin. And God is slow to anger. Yet he is not unjust and will not let sin go unpunished. It's so easy for us to consider the injustices of the world. Think about the past few months and all the unmarked graves that, that have been counted so far and the numbers will keep increasing think about those injustices it's easy to to see the injustice of the world and it's very easy to ask where is God where is your God and, and my answer is just as easy he is not deaf he is not blind he is not slumbering Rather, he is preparing his wrath to be poured out on every sin. And this is a biblical and this is a theological fact. But he is rich in mercy and he is slow to anger. This is what we read in Second Peter. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Think about that before casting judgment upon someone else because of their astronomically wicked views on things. Think about the fact that God is merciful to them and allowing them to breathe. Think about the fact that you were not any different than they are. But God's mercy... He continues as his description of God. God is merciful, but God's mercy is grounded in something. There is something upon which mercy stands. And it is love. But God being rich in mercy because of, on account of, the great love with which he loved us. Mercy is grounded in God's love for you and me. God's special love for his elect, his people. 
And his love is most astronomically highlighted in verse 5. Let me read it all again. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, going back to verse 1, even when we were dead in our trespasses, that's who God is. God extends love to, to, to hell-bound haters of God. That's mercy, and he is patient towards you. He's patient towards his people, waiting for their repentance. Now, that's who God is. Now, what does God do? What does God do? There are three actions. There are three verbs. God is the subject of three verbs in this sentence, even when we were dead in our trespasses, here's what he did. He made us alive together with Christ. He made us, see the contrast, death and life. He is the one who brings those who are spiritually dead to life. Only he can do that. And he raised us up. He raised us up and he seated us. Think about, think about, Ezekiel, the prophet. Ezekiel is commissioned by God. Ezekiel has this vision in chapter 37 where God essentially says to him, Son of man, that's, that's Ezekiel's name, gets called Son of man a lot, Son of man, which is picked up by Jesus, of course. Ezekiel, Son of man, come here, stands up in a mountain, looks down at a valley, sees dry bones everywhere. Not just bones, dry bones everywhere. And the question that is posed before Ezekiel is, Son of man, can these bones live? And what's Ezekiel's answer? Only you know. I don't know. I have no idea. Presumably not. Everything's dead and dry. It cannot be any more dead. And then slowly in his vision, he begins to see bone being connected to bone with ligaments, tendons being tendons and ligaments being connected to bones and, and muscles and flesh. And then all of a sudden, in due time, there's a host of people standing up and God breathes air, the air of life in their lungs and there is an army standing there ready for battle. That's what God does. He does the impossible. He, he raises us up. The, when Paul says that he has raised us up, this is, this is resurrection language and the seating, the seating language. He has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. His language of victory. Your enemies are all around you. David says, you prefer, prepare a table before me, before my enemy, so that I can eat. The last thing you're doing when you are being pursued by your enemies, thinking about having a meal. But God, through Christ, brings us triumph and brings us victory. These three activities of God point to one reality, that heaven is open, that hell exists. We deserve that, but that heaven is open and fully accessible. I want you to take stock of this, the nature of the verbs here the nature of the verbs, he made us alive, he raised us up, and he seated us. 
These are completed actions. He made us alive, raised us, seated us. The aorist tense often captured in the English by the past tense here conveys the reality of a complete event. This means that while we are not yet seated with Christ, and while death still awaits us, we are guaranteed a seat at the table, and we are guaranteed resurrection life. In other words, we are inseparable from Christ. His loving mercy keeps us so that we can say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 that there is nothing in heaven, on earth, whether height or death, anything in creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Why does God extend mercy to his people? Verse 7 Verse 7, so that, that, that's the purpose, so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The purpose is to showcase his grace. His grace, we who are bound to hell because we hate God who were once alienated from God, who pursued our own lusts and passion, God makes alive so that we might see him, so that we might enjoy him and know that we belong to him, that we have been rescued from darkness into his marvelous light. We who were once Blind and unwilling, God has given sight and given a heart that wills to follow him at any cost. Friends, there is a divine contrast. God and man, man dead in sin, acting in sin. God, the life giver who rescues and brings to life dead men. And the the crucial word is but in verse 4. But God, this creates the contrast. And like a beautiful sunset or a beautiful sunrise, which weds together night and day, so we see a reckoning of God's work in sinful humans signaled by the word for in verse 8. Four strings together and grounds everything that came before. That contrast that Paul has created is grounded in this, but creates the contrast and four grounds and summarizes the contrast. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the grace of God that saves you and the instrument of salvation is the faith that you have noticed have been saved You know, that is a passive verb. It is not an active verb. Just like when you have been healed in the operating room table, you didn't do anything. The action was done to you. The same thing with salvation. You have not done anything but believed. That is it. It is God who grants you salvation. You are the passive recipient of God's grace. What are we saved from? We are saved from God himself. We are saved from the wrath of God. We are saved from the just judge who will not let sin go unpunished. The means, the vehicle of grace is faith. It is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It is not a generic faith. It is a real, objective faith where in the eyes of your heart, you know that Christ, the man who hung on the tree, did so because of the great love with which he had for us, that he willingly gave up his life on the cross so that the full satisfaction of God's wrath might be poured out on him and not on us, God will judge sin. He's not going to let sin go unpunished. When injustices are done in this world, know that there is a reckoning either on that person or on Christ at the cross. And if you, friend, have not been saved, have not placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you simply look to him, recognize that he is the only one who can save you. He shed his blood that you may have life so that you may not spend eternity apart from him. You're saved by God through faith. And notice how Paul ends this. This is not of your own doing. It is not of your own doing. Why? So that nobody can boast. I have, no, I know that the Lord has saved me. I know the life that I lived. I know the special, sweet grace of God in my life, but I cannot boast in any way whatsoever because it was not my choice to save myself. It was God who graciously looked upon me and gave me faith to trust in him, to trust on that sacrifice of his son on the cross. I, I can't boast. The movement from death to life is an activity of God. God is merciful and God acts according to his mercy by saving his people. In the book of Revelation, pretty confusing sometimes, there is, if anything, we should all have the following agreement on that book, and that is that there is evil in this world, but Christ overcomes. There is no question about that one. The details we'll all find out one day, but not right now. And what the book tells us is that on the last day, a trumpet will sound. Metaphorical or little, literal, I don't know. But a trumpet will sound. And it is going to sound so loud, as the old song goes, that it will raise up the dead. And for those who are in Christ, they will be raised to everlasting life. And those who are not in Christ will be raised to everlasting torment. And friends, the, the, the options are there. It is yours. Faith is all you need. Pray that the Lord will lead you to Christ. For us who are in Christ here today, know that there is victory in him. There is sweet victory in Christ. Let's pray. Father, as difficult as so many of these things are in Scripture, we are thankful for the clarity that we are saved by grace through faith. And those things are not of our own doing. It is a gift of God so that we may not boast. And Father, for, if I had the power within me, I would bring everyone here to salvation that's listening at this moment, but I can't do that but I know you are wise and I pray that you would quicken the hearts of those who are listening this morning who have not come to know you yet. Lord, would you be gracious to them? Would you showcase the immeasurable riches of your grace and kindness that you have 
shown the world in Christ Jesus who is a joke to this world, but who will return one day to reign in glory. God be glorified. Amen.